0: Listening to the Miracle Word podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Let's jump in today. I want to talk about this. If you didn't get a chance to share, please Take a moment and share the broadcast. If you're on Periscope or Twitter, retweet it. Um, if you're on YouTube, uh, click the share button, if you would, and to copy the link maybe to your to your social. Uh, if you're on Facebook, you know what to do. Uh, people need to hear this because I get so many questions about Bible translation, and you know because people know that I love this subject. Anytime uh, you know a new Bible translation in English is released. I get calls from people, texts from people. Have you have you used this one yet? What do you think about this Bible translation? And um, so I want to talk to you about that, and I want to talk to you because the, people might people. I think people are confused. You know, one of the things that people say is, "Well, you know, why do we have so many translations of the Bible?" That might be confusing because people may say, "Well, if the Bible says one thing." You know, if it's God's word and it says one thing, then why do we have so many different versions of it that say different things or say that thing in a different way? And I can understand to how uh, somebody that may be um, a new Christian or maybe not even understand Bible translation or or any of those subjects, it might seem confusing. Or, and it also might even seem contradictory. Say, well, you know, I was reading a scripture the other day in um, the NIV, and then I opened up, you know, the King James or the New King James Version, and it said it in a different way. You know, the words were different. It was saying the same thing, but the words seemed to be different. What did God really say? And um, why do we have all these English translations of the Bible through the years? Isn't it enough to just have one? And um, as we start, let let me say this to you. One of the things I do believe is that we have too many English translations of the Bible. And you do have to remember this because it is important to keep this in mind. Because now these translations, the Bible itself necessarily cannot, but translations or the works of translations uh, can be copywritten and patented. So the only people that have the right to sell them are those publishing companies that own the rights to that translation. So for example... The New Living Translation, which we, we use, is owned and, and operated by the Tyndale Publishing House. Um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is what I've got here in the studio today in my Bible, is owned by Crossway. You know, so one of the things you do have to remember is Bibles, you know, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, of any book in history. It is the best-selling book. So keep in mind, there is the monetary aspect of it that every time a new translation comes out this touted this is the best translation ever released in English and it's a money maker don't forget it's a money maker and i'm not saying that that uh, that, that people are releasing the bible or that those that are on the board of translation for that translation are all money hungry greedy i don't believe that i believe that they're godly men and women that are that are actually taking time and the years they've given of their life to study the original languages of scripture and all that. I don't believe that they're just money hungry, but remember this, there is a money aspect to it. So somebody earlier mentioned the passion translation and, uh, as the pa- as the, uh, Passion passion translation came out, you know, it becomes a fad. And in the body, everybody's like, Oh, I got the passion. Did you get the passion translation? I love the way that it says that such and such and such. And oh man, it just opened my eyes to so much script. And then by word of mouth and by advertising, everybody's like, Man, I got to get that passion translation. And then keep in mind, it's owned and operated by a certain publishing house, and you're they're making money on that. So there is the money-making aspect of it. It, it is the best-selling book of all time. But that's not what we're really covering today. What I want to cover with you in this session is um, how do you go about choosing a Bible translation? How do you go about choosing a Bible translation? And what details do you need to know that will help you make an informed decision about choosing a Bible translation? Because this, this is important. I mean, it is important. There's a reason that we use specific translations at Miracle Word University. There's a reason that when you are studying the doctrines of the Bible, you should use a specific uh, type of translation. And I'm going to get into that with you today. So many of you may have never heard this kind of stuff before, but it's important for Christians to hear because I don't just accept any translation that's out there and say, yeah, I'm going to use that Bible. That sounds good to me. No, no, don't do that. Okay, so we're going to talk about this. And I want to jump in. I'm going to break it up into a few uh, different different things here. Number one, we we do know, because I know there's probably people watching me that um, may have been Catholic before they became Protestant Christians. And maybe you grew up Catholic. And now you're a Protestant Christian. And you might be confused in saying, well, I notice that our Catholic Bible um, has a bunch more books in it than the Protestant Bible does. And so I noticed that when I got my Protestant Bible, all those books are are, mis- are missing. You know, so you might go in there and say where are the Maccabees? And you know, where's you know where are all these other books? You know, where's Bell and the Dragon? Um and it's because the Catholic Bible includes what are known as apocryphal books, apocryphal books. So these are books that may have been referenced by church fathers. They may have been referenced in the earliest centuries of the church. They may have even been read publicly, but they are not recognized as God's holy word. They're not recognized as what we call canon of scripture, the canon of scripture. Um, And there's good, good reason, trust me, there's good, good reasons for that uh, as to why they're not recognized. Now, let me just say as a side note, and I'm not teaching on this today, But if you ever hear anyone say that, like, you know, Constantine or somebody in history, you know, is the one who came up with the list of books that should be in the Bible and which ones shouldn't be, that's total garbage. It's total garbage. Nobody decided what books should be in the Bible. No one as a human can decide canon of scripture. All we can do is recognize canon and accept it. All we can do is recognize it. We can't decide it. We recognize it. Well, how do we recognize it? We we look at books that have um, prophecy in them as we talked about yesterday, things that prophesied the future and it came to pass. We look at books that did not contradict the doctrines that the apostles or Christ taught or Paul taught. Um, We look at books that um, don't have error in them. That'd be a great way. You know, God's not going to be a God of error. He's perfect. So if you've got books that are completely um, destroying his historical accuracy, uh, geographical accuracy, um, all these different different things, historic, you look back through and say, well, this king lived in this. He's like, this, that king wasn't even alive during those years. He couldn't have ruled or reigned in those years. Um, now, that's a good question. Dory says, what's your opinion on the book of Enoch? Now, it's important to know that the book of Enoch is not considered an apocryphal book. It's it's considered a pseudopigraphal book. It's a book that was accepted at, by al- almost nobody in the world as God's word. Nobody. There were a few like uh, Ethiopian churches, I believe, that accept the the book of Enoch. But there's like, if I'm correct on this, and I could come back and correct myself later. But when I when I took time to study uh, the book of Enoch, there's like over 1,500 errors in the book of Enoch. There's like 1,500 plus errors, I believe, in the book of Enoch. So uh, the book of Enoch is not God's word. It is not God-breathed. It is not one of the lost quote-unquote books of the Bible that was now discovered and was somehow needs to be put back into the Bible. It is none of those. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, all these New Testament apocryphal gospels, they're not the lost books of the Bible. They're not And I have a great YouTube video on this if you've never seen it. uh, The shocking truth about the lost books of the Bible. You need to go watch, it's very short. They're not the Bible, they're not God's word, they're not um, Theonostas, as we said yesterday. They're not God breathed, uh, and there's error in them. You know, when you have Peter saying, Let's go take Mary and turn her into a man so that she's worthy of life, only men are worthy of life, you understand those are not God inspired documents. You know that in order to have eternal life, every woman has to become a man. Those are things found in the apocryphal gospels, um, <laughs> that that are that we have now. So what we have, by the way, in this Bible, is the canon, the closed canon of Scripture. Nothing can be taken away. Nothing can be added. Um, it is recognized as God's holy word, based upon what it says, what it's done. And so let me just, and there's lots of books you could read on this. How did we get our Bible? Uh, And I can even put some of these out as a a reading list if you want to go deeper and study. But we need to understand a couple of things, by the way, and I'm glad Dory asked that question because there's Christians that like, it blows my mind that there are Christians who are not satisfied just like reading the Bible we do have. They get carried away and like, well, I found, I've heard that the gospel of Thomas Gospel of Mary's got stuff we need to hear. We need to read the book of Enoch. And you know, we and it's it's a total waste of your time when you haven't even read the Bible itself. I'm not saying it's a total waste of time, period. I'm saying if you haven't read the Bible itself, you're wasting your time reading the book of Enoch and all these other things. Read God's holy word. Read what's love you, Gary. Love you so much. Um, you know. Read God's word, you know, and so when you're choosing a Bible translation, let me give you a couple of things that are going to help you. First thing we need to understand is what are the what are the types of Bible translation? Now, this is important. This is very, very important. So if you're taking notes, um, write this down because it's very important. There are different methods of translating the Bible different methods of translating, okay? There are two main ones that we're going to talk about today. There's one method, and and you can see it on a spectrum, because every Bible translation in English is going to use a combination of these two, because it would be impossible to do um, what we call a word-for-word translation from Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic into English. It just would be impossible. You couldn't do it. It would be unreadable. So, There is, number one, the word-for-word method of translation. That's also known by people who study as formal equivalence. Word-for-word, that's one method of translation. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have what's known as thought-for-thought. And I'll explain what these two mean in a moment. Thought-for-thought translation, or what's known as dynamic equivalence, or sometimes called functional equivalence. So you have word-for-word translations of the Bible. And then you have on the other side, thought-for-thought translations of the Bible. And it is important to know the difference between the two. Um, Dynamic equivalence, functional equivalence, or formal equivalence, which is word-for-word. Now, the reason it's important to know these things is because when they take the time to translate your Bible into English, they have to make a decision. They have to make a decision to say, okay, we have these manuscript copies, Hebrew for the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with portions written in Aramaic, just a few portions really. And then the New Testament written in Greek, Koine Greek, which was really considered marketplace Greek. It was the common language of the day. The New Testament was written in the common language of their day so that pretty much anyone could understand it when it was read to them. And so you've got word for word, you've got thought for thought. Um, And so when a scholar or a group of scholars, normally translations are done by a translation team. Um, Like, for example, the, the New Living Translation, I believe, had over 80 or 90 Bible scholars that translated the New Living Translation over a period of about six to eight years to give us that translation. And each of those groups were given a section. Maybe, maybe five to ten guys took the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they worked on translating those. Some may have worked on the gospels. So, you know, and so it's not one person translating the whole Bible. You've got a, a board of translation that's working on men that have given their life to understand ancient Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, that can most of them uh, could probably speak it to you. But literally, they can read it, they can write it, they can translate it. They under the, they understand the syntax, they understand everything that's necessary in order to translate these into English. And so, when you look, uh, it, there, Andrew, there's no whole books that are written in Aramaic. Only chapters or portions of chapters are written in Aramaic. Um, so when you understand that they have to make a decision so they say okay well what type of translation are we going to go about making for for english-speaking people do we want to make a translation that is extremely understandable instantly understandable and instantly um digestible i guess would be a good way to say it and i'll and i'll talk to you about what how these how these go if you were to look, and I could put this picture up probably on the Facebook page afterwards, and I don't know if you guys can see this or not, but look at this. Can you see this? Let me see if I can put that. There's an English Bible translation comparison. You see that chart? That chart, see on one side it says word for word, and on the other side it says paraphrase or thought for thro- thoughts in the middle? That chart shows you all the English translations and where they fall on the word for word. The thought-for-thought thought, uh, spectrum, and so let's let's talk about that for a second. All the way on the word-for-word word side of the spectrum would be something like the New American Standard Bible, the New Amer. The, what, what's what we call the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is like considered to be like one of the most word-for-word translations, literal word-for-word translations of the Bible in English. Then, if you go all the way over to the other side of the spectrum, you would have something, and it's not on the far end, but on the other side, you'd have another one of my favorite Bibles, the New Living Translation. So the New Living Translation is one that would be considered a thought-for-thought translation of the Bible and I'll explain both of what these mean in a moment. So you've got word for word on one end, that's the New American Standard Bible falls on the furthest end of the spectrum, and then you've got the New Living Translation all the way over on this side of the spectrum, and they're different. The new so so let me give you the philosophy of why they would do that. Why would why would anybody do that? So let me ask you a question. If I want to know what the Bible says and I want to read what God spoke and breathed into those writers, wouldn't I want to read exactly what he said? Wouldn't I want to read the exact words that he penned, to the uh, that he had those authors pen? Why would I want somebody to tell me just, um, not a paraphrase, but almost to just translate their thoughts to me in a modern way versus what they literally said? Well, there's a, there is one good reason that you might want that to happen is because culture has changed over 2,000 years. Uh, Ways of speaking have changed over 2,000 years. And so there are some things in the Bible that when you read it, although you could understand the words, you would not know what they meant when they said it. I'll give you an example that's a, a very easy to understand example. The Bible says that there's one point in the New Testament where Jesus is teaching something that makes the religious leaders so angry that he taught it, that the Bible says, if you read it literally, if you read it like in the NASB or the ESV, something that's a word for word translation, the Bible says that they they returned home beating their breasts. Now that's what the literal Greek manuscript says, that they returned home beating their breasts. Well, you can read that and you can understand that, the, the English words. But would you know what that meant? Would you know what it meant if I told you Pharisees returned home beating their breasts? You wouldn't know what that meant. That's because culturally things have changed. So how does something like the New Living Translation translate that passage? Well, they uh, what they do is they take those original words, the Pharisees return home beating their breasts, and then they translate the meaning of it or the thought into a way that you can instantly understand what the Bible was saying and what would have been understood by the hearer in the first century. So what do they do in the New Living? Instead of them translating it, and they returned home beating their breasts, what does they say? New Living says, and they returned home in deep sorrow. So culturally, in that day, if they wanted to show their grievance or their sorrow about something, they would beat their breast. And sometimes, you know, they could, the Bible says in the Old Testament, they would even rend their clothing. They'd tear their clothes as a sign of their grieving or their, uh, really their disapproval of what was going on. And so here's what happens is that you've got the the NASB giving us the very literal Word-for-word word translation, and they returned home beating their breasts. But then you'd have to take time and do your own study and say, well, what does that mean? Go back to the culture, study that out. Okay, what does it mean if Pharisees beat their breasts? And the... But then if you're reading it and wanting to have instant understanding with what that passage means, a thought-for-thought thought translation, their philosophy is, we want you to be able to read the Bible and just as quickly as the hearers in the first century would have understood what's being said and meant, we're going to write it in such a way in modern English that you will instantly understand what is meant by this passage. So instead of you having to go and figure out well, what does that mean, beat their breast, you can just read the New Living that says, and they returned home in deep sorrow. And you say, like, oh, I get it. Jesus taught something that the religious leaders didn't agree with and they started beating their breast. They were, they went home sorrowful because they didn't like what Jesus taught. Okay. So what is the, what is the downside then of something like a thought for thought translation? Well, the downside is that at some level it takes what you're reading is the translators interpretation of what was meant by word for word scripture. So you're, what you're doing is you're, it's actually like putting a buffer between you and what was originally written in the Bible by the Lord. And so, and by, as he penned those things through the authors. And so what you end up having is you've got a, a buffer or or someone that's translating the translation with their understanding. And so that's necess- that's not what you want. So what I tell people is this, is that if you are studying Bible doctrine, if you're studying Bible doctrine, it's important to read word-for-word translations of the Bible. Why? Because we want to go all the way to as closely as possible what was originally said in the manuscript that we have in the Greek or Hebrew and know exactly what those writers wrote down to the best of our ability. And so you have those two sides. Um, Priscilla is asking about the MEV or the Modern English Version. If you look at that, it's on the side. The MEV, um, Priscilla, would be closer to the side of like the word-for-word word translation of the Bible. It's over there with the NASB. It's over with, over there with like the King James Version and uh, those those Bibles. So if you want me to give you some examples, I will. I, I know I took the thing down, but. All the way on the word for word side, you know, we have the New American Standard Bible. We've got the Modern English Version, the Amplified. Um, We have the New King James Version, the King James Version, the ESV, which I'm using here. And then all the way over there on the Thought for Thought side, we have things like um, the God's Word Translation. We have New Living Translation. Uh, Somewhere towards the middle is the NIV. And so what you have is, is you've got a spectrum because they're not, they're not purely thought for thought and they're not purely word for word. There's a spectrum. There's a spectrum we're dealing with. And so that's why like in Miracle Word University, um, when we study Bible doctrine, we make sure that we use a word for word translation. So all the scriptures that we're going to read at Miracle Word U are going to come out of the NASB or the ESV as we're teaching, and that is that is important because when you're studying what you should believe um, about the Bible, now we're going to cover Jesus is King of Kings and Prince of Peace on YouTube is asking a question um, about about the Bible, and I'm going to I'm going to answer that because it's part three of this. So we wanna study what is considered the most word for word translation of the Bible and know what was originally written by the apostles and and the prophets and those that were inspired by God. That makes sense. I'm not saying that it's bad to use a New Living Translation of the Bible. I'll still read the New Living Translation. I'm not saying that it's bad to read it. People have this this question, they're like, okay, well, how is it it then that um, we have some Bibles, We have some Bibles in the English language that in the more modern translations, they seem to be taking verses out of the Bible. Now, anybody that's logging on uh, as you're sharing, let me ask you a question. Has anybody heard someone say that before? Has anyone heard someone say, these modern translations of the Bible are taking verses out of the Bible? If you've ever heard that, put some hands in the comment section. I'm interested to know if you've heard it, if heard anyone say it. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, people get all bent out of shape about newer translations of the Bible is that th- that's one of the arguments that they'll make. They'll say, well, these newer translations of the Bible, they're taking verses out of the Bible. They're taking taking verses all the way out of the Bible. They're, they're chopping up, slicing up God's word and taking stuff out, has anybody ever heard that argument before? They're taking stuff out. You know that they—they're—they're they're trying to manipulate God's word. If you've heard that, put some hands in. Um, people have said that about the NIV. They've said it about the NLT. They've said it about the ESV. They've—they've um, they've said it about a bunch of modern translations of the Bible. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Um, when you're saying things like that. First of all, let me give you a statistic. This could be eye-opening for you. In the Bible, there are 31,102 verses of Scripture. In our Protestant Bible, 31,102 verses of Scripture. Modern translations of the Bible only have issue with putting in the main text 16 of those verses 16 that's it and i'm going to explain to you why in a moment but understand they say they're taking verses out of the bible they're not even there they're not even there and they're tra- these new versions of the bible they're they're antichrist christ editions because they're taking stuff out some stuff that even talks about the trinity right exactly tyler So the question you have to ask yourself when you say they are, quote unquote, taking verses out of the Bible. Okay, well, what's your reference point? Is it the King James version of the Bible? Is that your reference point? That you had a King James growing up and now that you've got an NLT or an ESV or an NASB and you look through and you're like, hold on a second, those verses aren't there. These new ones are taking verses out of the Bible. Let me explain it to you and by the way as I said there's only 16 verses that are in question and uh, certain portions of the Bible so let me show you uh, what the Bible says in certain of these passages let me let me give you an example at Ma- one of these verses of the 16 is Matthew 17 21 and here's what they'll do they'll show you the Bible and I'm gonna see if I can if I can see this when I show it to you they'll show you the Bible, and this is and this is what they'll do. I don't know if you'll be able to see my bible. Where's verse 20? Um yeah, I see it right there. Uh, if you see this, let me stand up. Right here, see that that what is that? Verse verse 20. Where does it go next? Verse 22. Jesus again foretells his death. That's verse 22. It goes from verse 20 to verse 22. You see that? And they'll be like, see, it's proof. It's proof right there. They're taking verses out of the Bible. They're not even trying to hide it. They went straight from Matthew 17, 20 to Matthew 17, 22. They're not even trying to hide the fact they took a verse out of the Bible. But the question is, did they really take a verse out of the Bible? You have to understand how Bible translation is done and you have to understand the transmission of the Bible. By the way, this is what responsible translations will do for you. If I look and show you in the footnotes of my Bible, I don't know if you can see this, but look in your footnotes and you'll see, let me see if I can put it properly, see this Some manuscripts insert verse 21, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So notice what they just did for you is that although verse 21 wasn't in Matthew 17 in the modern translations, they put it in a footnote. They're not trying to remove it from you and tell you and just omit it and say it's gone forever. You'll never see it again. They're putting in the footnote for any of you that are wise enough to study it all that some manuscripts insert verse 21 in, and by the way, as you know, chapters and verses were not even uh, created and entered into scripture until like the 1500s. So it's like, you know, for, for 1500 years, no one had chapters or verses. It was just something created so that we could actually have an easier reference to find a passage of scripture. But Bibles before that didn't have chapters or verses. So when you say that they remove a a verse, let's talk about what that means. When you make a translation of the Bible, you have to uh, decide what manuscripts am I going to use? And there uh, there is, and this is a little bit more in depth, but I'll quickly explain it. There is a discrepancy or there's a disagreement about which manuscripts should be used. I had a great conversation about this with my friend, Pastor Alan Dadio last week when I was in North Carolina. Um, they have what's called some of the oldest manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts that have been found that are dated far before many of the other ones we have. But then we have what's called the majority text. These are many, 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 many many, many manuscripts found all around the world. But they all, scholars all agree that these Manuscript copies were made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later after the earliest texts that we have. So the reason that there's a discrepancy about translating these 16 verses and putting them in the main text of our Bibles is because when you go back to history and you look at the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Bible, especially the new, I'm talking about New Testament documents, those verses weren't there. They weren't there. And then down through the years, there are reasons that we understand that those things were added into scripture. And I'm not saying that they were added into scripture. Um, Understand that even with the gospels, think about this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all telling the same stories. They're called the synoptic gospels. So when you go to Mark chapter nine, which is the parallel story of Matthew 17, where I just took you, and Jesus is explaining to his disciples why they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy, what does he say to them? This kind does not come out except by prayer. And then later manuscripts we have say, and fasting. But in Matthew, even though we have that same story of the the demon being cast out of the boy, the gospel of Matthew doesn't have that area where Jesus explains to them why they couldn't do it. But because the scribal scholars knew that what the story was and they'd translated the gospels. They said, well, one thing that happened, because remember this, we don't have any original copies of the Bible. There's no original autographs left on the earth. All we have are manuscript copies of the original autographs. So when you understand how scribes would copy the Bible down through the ages, one of the things that may have been thought by a scribe when he's reading Matthew and knows Mark very well, knows that Jesus said this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting, he might be going down through and say, oh, the scribe who copied this manuscript of Matthew forgot to put that verse in. And let me tell you, it wasn't hard for the, especially for New Testament copying for, the, for those types of things to happen every once in a while. Now, Remember this, this should not give you any doubt about the scripture because we have 6,000 plus manuscripts of of the New Testament and they, although there might be textual variants in all those things, they're not all in the same place. So it's not like we have 6,000 manuscripts that forgot to put that in. No, we have manuscripts that where they may make a difference in punctuation or, or uh, add a word or something like that. The scribes did that. It's not that way in every manuscript. So we can compare them together. And by comparison, you know, a hundred manuscripts may not say this, uh, but then you've got 6,000 that do, you know, or or you got 4,000 that do. So you understand, okay, well, this was a line where they forgot to put it or missed it. But if you compare it to the thousands of others we have, we know it was there. So you can, you can understand what was originally written with verses like this, a scribe might say, oh, well, I've I've translated Mark a ton of times, and um, or I've copied Mark a ton of times, and uh, now I see the same story here in Matthew. He he must have forgotten to put in what Jesus said or missed that line. This kind comes not out but by prayer and fasting. So what what are the times it would uh one of the one of the ways it would happen is it would start maybe as a side note or a marginal note from a scribe, and he would add in that uh, this kind comes not out but by, by prayer and fasting in Matthew then scribes afterwards may look at that and say, oh, he, 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 he didn't, because one of the things that would happen is they would begin to write these manuscript copies and then realize, oh, I skipped a line. And so when they skipped a line and, and, and kept on writing, they would add marginal notes and put those things in. So a scribe may think, oh, he forgot to put that line in. Well, in reality, it was him adding a marginal note, knowing what was in Mark, and saying it should have been in Matthew as well. So a later scribe may have taken that uh, marginal note and said, "Oh, he forgot to put that in," and then wrote it in on the manuscript copy that he's making. So that as the years go down, we see that those things. We don't. We don't. We're not trying to somehow insinuate that there were devious scholars that were trying to insert doctrines into the Bible, and they wrote these things into the Bible. They didn't do that. These were godly men that loved the Lord, that wanted the Bible to be available to New Testament believers. So what it, it was just literally scribal errors that happened through thousands of years uh, that, that caused these things to happen. Now, the question that uh, Kevin uh, Kevron is asking, what about the end of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? That's a great question. This is another one of those passages that I was just speaking about. So if you go to the end of Mark, most people don't know that there are three endings of the Gospel of Mark, three endings. As I said, if you'll go back to the earliest manuscripts that we have in antiquity, the earliest dated copied manuscripts that we have from from archaeology of the Gospel of Mark, you're not going to find anything beyond verse number 8. The earliest New Testament manuscripts that we have end with Mark 16, 8. Then the third, uh, or I should say the second ending of Mark is that you'll find some manuscripts that have verse 9. And then on through to um, the third one, you'll find... All the way to the end, but again, we have we have footnotes that explain this to us, so we're not guessing. Why, you know, because some people get offended because some translations, like the New Living, will put a bar, they'll put like a, a a break, a line break with a line, and explain to you in the footnote about the endings of Mark. So let me read you. Excellent question, Kevron. Let me read you what the footnotes of the ESV say about the ending of Mark. Listen to this. Uh, If we look at footnote number nine, some manuscripts end the book with 16.8. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. And some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they'd been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west, the sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And these manuscripts then continue with verses nine through 20. So understand this, that uh, the earliest manuscripts of the Bible that we have are not showing nine through 20, but then manuscripts that are found later do have it. So Kevron's asking, so is it scripture or not? Remember this, there is no, Absolutely no doctrine of the Bible that is affected by any textual variant. None. Even if let's just say this: even if we did not have Mark uh, 16, 9 through twenty, that does not affect any doctrine of the Bible. Here's one that people uh, argue. I'll give you the exact same the exact same thing that uh, Kevron's making the point here. Uh, I discussed this with Pastor Allen last week. One of the big ones, one of the big one, big ones, is Acts chapter eight and verse thirty-seven. Listen to what Acts eight thirty-seven uh, says, and it's of course it's not in this, this Bible because it, this is a modern translation, the ESV. But it's we have it in the footnote. This is regarding baptism. This is Philip the evangelist dealing with the Ethiopian eunuch after salvation about baptism. So listen to this. The Bible says. Uh, and I'll read you 36 and 38. And then I'll read you what 37 says. As they were going along the road, they came to, <clears throat> to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? 36. Now we jump to 38 because 37 is gone. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, the King James has 37. But the modern translations don't. So let's read 37 in the footnote. The Bible says, some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And then it goes into, and he commanded the chariot to stop. So the reason this is so important is because, uh, you know, People that are King James only and people that don't believe this stuff is holy. I mean, I can't believe they'd take verses out of the Bible. Remember, once again, that this verse is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. And so people say, well, see, if you take that verse out, then people can just start doing infant baptisms. They can start baptizing infants and sprinkling babies with water because it takes out the teaching that you've got to be saved and believe on Jesus Christ to be baptized. And infants obviously can't believe. They don't have the capacity to understand and believe. They're infants. And so how can you baptize an infant that's not even saved? And that's the argument. But remember this and don't forget it. Even if we took Acts 8.37 out and never even read it or knew it was there, It does not change the doctrine of baptism. You look through the narrative of the book of Acts and all the rest of the epistles. There is zero, zero evidence that anyone ever baptized an infant in the New Testament. They didn't baptize infants. It's not what they were doing. And if you study how they baptized people, when you see the baptism scriptures, you know what it always says throughout the New Testament? And they believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. So even when whole households were baptized, the children that were there in the stories were old enough to understand salvation and then to be baptized in water. So understand, if if you if you take even these verses that were not in the earliest uh, manuscripts that we have found, even if the 16 verses in question uh, come out and we put them in the footnotes. It does not affect one doctrine of the Bible, not one. Doesn't affect salvation, doesn't affect baptism, doesn't affect tongues, doesn't affect prayer, doesn't affect the second coming of Christ, doesn't affect the rapture, doesn't affect anything. Not one doctrine of the scripture is, is affected by these, these verses, nothing. There's nothing that changes, Uh. The l- listen, People would argue, I'll give you one. I'll give you one that changes the doctrines of Scripture. First John 5 7. People go to this all the time. First John 5 7 is proof, you know, that um that doctrines are changed in the Bible. And of course, they're referring to uh the thought of the Trinity. And 1 John 5, 7 in the King James Version says something much different than in modern translations of the Bible. So let's go to 1 John 5, 7. I'm going to finish with this. 1 John 5, 7 in the King James Version, let me read it to you. The Bible says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, let's read it in the ESV, 1 John 5, 7. It, all it says is, For there are three that testify. And it moves to verse 8 the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Modern. Modern translations of the Bible do not include that phrase, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost for these three are one. That's something that is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. And you don't need that verse, by the way, you don't need that verse to have the doctrine of the Trinity. There there are other places throughout the New Testament where we can teach the doctrine of the Trinity Without 1 John 5, 7. You don't need it to believe in a triune Godhead. So understand when I tell you, because people will, you know, atheists will use this against you and agnostics will use it. See, you don't even, your Bible's not even consistent. You can't believe that because they're taking verses out. We don't know what's God's word, we don't know what it is. Understand something. There is zero changed by these 16 verses. Zero. Nothing doctrinally has changed about our Bible from not having these verses, uh, whether they're in the main text or the footnotes, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Doesn't bring doubt on Christianity. Doesn't bring doubt on our doctrines. Doesn't bring doubt on God's word or what it said. None of that brings doubt. And of the hundred, what did I tell you? Of the 31,102 verses in the Bible, only these uh, 16 are in question. And then of course you have, as uh, Kevin brought up, the end of Mark, and then, of course, in John chapter 8, the story about the woman caught in the act of adultery. Other than that, and it doesn't change doctrine. None of those things change the belief systems of Christians. And so now let's get into the final point of this. Um, What Bibles should we use and what Bibles should we stay away from? Um, I would say there's something else other than thought for thought and word for word, and that's something called a paraphrase a paraphrase of the Bible. A paraphrase is not a translation of the Bible. It's not a translation. So something like the Living Bible, uh, something like the Message Bible or the Message Remix that they did for teenagers, those are not translations of the Bible. They're paraphrases. So I mean, think, think about that. Think about that thought, a paraphrase of God's word as if God's word was not important enough to actually translate. Well, we're just gonna paraphrase what God said. That's why I think it's a waste of time to use the Living Bible or or to use the Message Bible. Well, I like the way it really says this. Good, it's the words of a man. It's not the words of God. You know, it's it's ridiculous. Um, The Passion Translation. I would be wary of any translation of the Bible Done by one man. Done by one man, and this guy claims he's found the love language of the Bible, and you know all this other stuff, and that he checked his work against scholars, and but he he found this love language of the Bible. I'd be very wary of it. I wouldn't use the Passion Translation for any reason. You don't need to. That's the point. You know, you know, it, it makes me laugh when people say, "Well, I like the way this translation says it, though." Yeah, but. Is it the way God said it? I mean, if you were to go back into the original manuscripts of the Greek or Hebrew, is that the way that it is actually said? And you're telling me one guy that found the love language of the Bible comes out. And don't forget, as I said at the beginning, it's a moneymaker. Bible translation and and sales, it's a moneymaker. And so I, I, I don't think you'd ever find me using the passion translation of the Bible for any reason. There's not a need to. We already have an abundance of wonderful English translations of the Bible. We have an abundance of wonderful translations. The NASB is a wonderful translation of the Bible. The ESV that I'm reading from today is a wonderful translation of the Bible. The King James Version is a wonderful translation of the Bible. I don't think you could deny that it is. It's a wonderful translation. It's just just that it's an older translation You know, it was originally made in 1611. So think about this, because there's people that really argue for the King James. You know, they want that to be the Bible that's still used. And it was used for 400 years. It changed the world. Uh, You know, it was. But remember something. When they translated the King James version of the Bible in 1611 and released it, there was a minimum amount of manuscripts available to translate the Bible from. Do you know how much archaeological discovery has been done since 1611 to 2020? Do you know how much we found? The Dead Sea Scrolls, for one. There's been so many more manuscripts of the Bible discovered since 1611. And so understand, it was a phenomenal translation. And I'm sa- I'm not saying to this day that it's not a good translation of the Bible. But remember, portions were translated from the Latin Vulgate which means that it's a translation of, the, of a translation. The Bible wasn't written in Latin. It was translated into Latin from Greek and Hebrew. So it, at some point, <clears throat> um, at some point, you know, it was at some points through the King James, it's a translation of a translation. So I'm not saying the translation of the King James is bad. I'm just saying that uh, we have an abundance of wonderful translations available to us. We're blessed. We are blessed in 2020. I don't consider the Passion Translation to be one of those great translations, nor do I consider you know, the Message Bible or the Living Bible actual translations at all, because they're not. Steve says, can you explain why the Dake Bible is much better than the Passion? Uh, the Dake Bible, that's kind of misleading because the Dake Bible is not an actual Bible. The Dake, Dake's notes on the Bible uses the King James Version of the Bible, and then he adds his notes on the Bible. It's more of like a study a study Bible. Uh, the New King James Version is, is also a good translation of Scripture, Lynn. They're great. Um, and and I, let me tell you something. The New Living Translation of the Bible that we give to new believers, that we give to partners, the New Living Translation, although I told you it's thought for thought, it's not a bad... Let me tell you something about the New Living. It took close to a decade for a group of about 90 scholars, Bible scholars, to carefully go through the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscripts and create a faithful text in the English for people so that they could readily understand the meaning of, of Scripture. And when they, when they insert those types of things into the New Living Translation of the Bible, they give plenty of textual footnotes to let you know why they made the decisions they did. Like I just showed you in my ESV, why is this verse not showing up in the main text? Well, here's why we didn't put it. It's not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. You know, if they make a, a decision to do certain things, or uh, like I said with the the, the translation, uh, they'll tell you sometimes uh, the literal the literal rendering of this um, passage is they returned home beating their breasts. But we did that to show you the cultural relevance. They went home in deep sorrow. So the the, the NLT, don't look at that like it's some kind of a subpar translation. It's a quality, quality translation of the Bible. Uh, I love the, I'm the same Tyler. I like the NLT for everyday reading. My daughter reads the NLT. Um, You know, I don't think she's going to lose anything because she didn't grow up reading the King James Version of the Bible. It's just many people, so many people grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible. You know, when you hear people that make this argument that the King James Version is the greatest in English because God's hand was obviously on it because for 400 years it changed the world. It was the translation that changed the world. That's their argument. So their argument is that usage, tons of usage makes it superior. Tons of usage makes it superior. But we know that that's not true even logically. Let me ask you this, those of you that are watching. Has anybody watching ever gone to a gourmet burger place? Gourmet burgers. Maybe somewhere they make like these homemade, these best burgers, massive burgers. You ever been to a burger place like that? There might only be one or two of them if it's a chain at all. Might be a one-stop shop. There's only one of them. And you may have to travel to New York or travel to Vegas or somewhere where that burger place is to get their burger, their famous burger. Well, <clears throat> if you've ever been to a burger place like that, but then you've also, let me let me ask you, probably everybody watching has been to McDonald's. You've been to McDonald's. When you look at the sign on McDonald's, what does it say? Over 99 billion served or something like that? 99 billion burgers served? Well, you know as well as I do that uh, McDonald's is far more used than those one-stop gourmet burger places. McDonald's is far more used. But that does not mean that McDonald's is a superior burger because more people use it. That's not what it means. It just means it was more readily available. So usage has nothing to do with superiority. And people make that argument about the King James. Well, it's, it's the one for 400 years that went around the world, changed the world. It was used by everybody. It's the one God had his hand on. I could make that, you know, I could make that same argument right now in usage about the the version Bible app and say, well, let me tell you about the version Bible app that's been downloaded 2 billion times and has put every version of the Bible in the hands of anybody with a smartphone around the world, instantly available for free, for free. What should I say? That the version Bible app. Is just as effective as the King James Bible because of usage. No, you can't just use usage alone as the uh, watermark for quality. Uh, does Young's Literal Translation compare to the NASB? So, if you look at the, if you look at what I, what I was telling you about that uh, chart, and you take a look at the where the YLT is listed. Um, I think it would be, they would have that, they would have that listed all the way towards the left, which is word for word, uh, with the exception of only the interlinear Bible, which nobody's going to read that. It would be almost unreadable, uh, for, for anybody to stand and read that, um, uh, you got to look at it. I'm not sure about the Gideon's Bibles if they're all K- KJV. I think some of them now might be NIV. You have, you have to look and see. I remember when I was in Bible school, there was so much there there was so much um, controversy about the NIV. <laughs> some of my professors in Bible school would call the NIV the Nearly Inspired Version. <laughs> well, let me just make some suggestions to you. If you're studying doctrine. Okay, the reason that I carry an ESV and preach from it is because although the NASB is the closest word-for-word translation that you're going to get in the English, it's a little bit, the reading of it is a little bit more stiff. Some people would call it quote-unquote wooden. It's a wooden reading. Um, The ESV moves a little bit more towards the right, although it is word-for-word tradition. So the ESV is a word-for-word tra- tradition of the of the manuscripts, um, but it's a bit <clears throat> easier to flow and read through. Um, kind of like the New Living would be extremely easy to flow and read through. But no one's going to, I mean, you know, if you're reading the New Living Translation of the Bible, you're not hurting yourself. My daughter reads it. We give it to new believers. I want the Bible to be readily understandable to people and understand that nobody is supposed to literally take a Bible and try to develop their whole Christian existence around their own reading of the Bible. That was not God's intention. It never was. Read the book of Ephesians. He set gifts in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that are there for the equipping of the saints, the perfecting of the saints. We're commanded to go to church. There is a pastor that should be pastoring you. And so part of the responsibility of the man of God that's in your life is that he's supposed to be equipping you and and teaching you and preaching to you and helping you become more proficient in the word. You're not supposed to do it on yourself, uh, all on your own responsibility. We have the word. It's not like the dark ages where only people that knew Latin could read us um, the Bible, you know, that no lay person should have a copy of the Bible or be able to read it because it should come straight from the lectern. No, that's not God's desire either. And so it's uh, it's important that we understand, yeah, the Amplified's a good trend. The, all the Amplified does is in brackets or parentheses puts every word that could possibly be meant by that word in the Greek or Hebrew into English. So it's a little hard to read it publicly because there's just so much. Yeah, I know. I know, Rudy. There's many that would say that. If I'm not King James only, my God, if you can't believe a 1611 King James Bible, what this world needs is more leather lunged gravy, sopping biscuit, eating King James Bible only preaching preachers. So it's important to know that. And, And I say that because I want you guys to understand why there's so many Bible translations, why you should choose one, the way you should choose one, how you should use it in your life, you know. And, and, and understand, your pastor is there. Evangelists are there. People like me there to help you because God put us in the church to perfect the saints, to help you, to help you, to equip you. And so, um, what is it? King James Version used to be the only version, but now local camps can choose them on King James Version King James, you know, in order to order and distribute. Yeah, and I mean, the King James Version was never the only translation of the Bible, ever. Before that, you had the... Um, uh, the Geneva Bible. You had, there were there were other things. There was a time that the King James Version was the new kid on the block, and nobody wanted it because the Pilgrims liked the Geneva Bible, and there was no reason uh, for you to uh, make a King James Version. We don't need it. We've got a perfectly wonderful translation of the Bible. Blah, blah blah blah. And so you know, it's it's important to understand that. But I wanted you guys to hear that today because I want you guys to have a love for the Word, and I don't want you to get caught up in in this. Uh, debate where people say, well, that's not the Bible because it's not the King James or that's not the Bible because, you know, it's got verses taken out. I want you to understand these things so that you can understand why things are happening so that your faith, number one, your faith should never be shaken by some of these arguments people try to make. Your faith should never be shaken. You should understand no doctrine of scripture is ever changed Even if all 16 of those passages, the ending of Mark and John 8, were removed. Doesn't matter. No Christian doctrine is changed by that. None. None. Should not shake your faith. Should not make you feel like you don't have a reliable copy of God's word in your hand. It's foolishness. If you were to understand the fullness of what we have in our hands, as I taught yesterday, it blows the minds of people of what we're holding in our hands. It will blow people's minds to understand Oh. what we hold in this Bible. I love it. If you guys didn't get a chance to watch that um, on the on the Chinese Christians getting their Bibles for the first time, go watch that. Go watch that on YouTube, it'll it'll make your heart. I mean, just like looking at those people so happy to get a Bible in their language. It's The Bible is such a wonderful thing. Such a wonderful thing God's given us. He's given us himself in written form. I wanna pray for those of you that are watching today. Father, in Jesus' name, my prayer for your people today is that you would give us a strong, strong hunger for the word of God. Give us a strong, strong hunger to read it, to study it, to know it, to memorize it, to confess it, to live by it. Give us a strong, strong hunger and desire for your word. Let 2020 be a year that we literally Can't get enough of the word of God that we read, we study, we quote, we confess, and let us become powerful and proficient in your word in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you guys want to take a moment and uh, sow a seed, I appreciate it. For those of you that are partnering with us, standing with us, I'm so thankful for you guys, Carolyn and I. Uh, thank God for you every single day, and we pray for you at least once a week as we take time to pray for our partners in the week. And so I want to say thank you because you mean a lot to us. We love you. We prayed for you for years. Do you realize we we asked God to connect us with people just like you for many years at the beginning of this ministry, and as we went, and God answered our prayers, and you're here. You're standing with us, and we love you, and we we love your families, and we pray for your families. And there's times that you guys just will pop up in my spirit. I know one of our close friends in ministry um, that's been connected to this ministry for a number of years, uh, Bethany and Chuck, they just popped up in my spirit last night as I was sitting on the front row at church and I sent them a message just to see how they're doing. Let them know we're praying for them. You guys are in our hearts. You're in our spirits and we love you. And uh, we appreciate you standing with us to see a generation saved and changed and uh, healed by the power of God. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a partner with this ministry, take a moment to partner with us. And we appreciate it. Whatever the Lord speaks to you to do, there's many people that partner at $85 a month, many at $100, $200 a month. We have some at 300 500 a month. And we appreciate them. And whatever God tells you to do, do it. If you'd like to give on miracleword.com, you can do that very easily. Anybody on Periscope or Facebook can use hashtag donate. And we have Cash App and Venmo available. You can use the username MWGive, and then of course the PayPal information's on the screen. And if you like to send a check, the the information or the address is on our website. At the footer of every page, you'll find our mailing address. And I wanna say a massive thank you to you guys. Of course, understand everybody that's sewing a 1,000 or more this month, we're gonna send you that beautiful genuine leather New Living Translation Study Bible. I took one for myself, I liked them so much. That I took one for myself and I've been studying it this week. I love it. It's got phenomenal notes and maps and uh, profiles of Bible characters. It's it's amazing Bible, amazing Bible. And so we want to bless you with it. And uh, that's for everybody that sows a thousand or more this month. We love you so much. We appreciate you. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the preview of Miracle Word University. Run over to MiracleWordU.com. Check those courses out and be a part of it. I love you guys. I'll be back again tomorrow. Man, is it Friday already tomorrow? I can't believe it. Friday in the morning tomorrow, I'll be back with you 10.30 a.m. And then um, we're flying home to Florida tomorrow night, late, and uh, I'll be back in the studio with you again on Monday morning from Florida back in the studio. And uh, so we love you guys so much. Thank you. And maybe I'll take some more questions about these Bible uh, subjects we've been teaching tomorrow. But we appreciate you guys so much. Have a powerful day. And uh, I'll talk to you again very soon. Love y'all.